edition of the Revolution Sports Podcast. This is your host, Tyler Wood. Thank you for joining us today on this Monday morning as we are going to look at some of the top sports stories from the weekend. Uh, just basically over the last couple of days, we got some stories from the NFL. We had week 14, so we're going to recap a couple of the bigger games of the week from that. And then we're going to go down the list. I mean, we're going to check college football real quick, and then we're going to jump to college basketball, and then we're going to jump to the NBA. So going to be jumping around a lot today. There's a good bit of material in here. I don't know how long we'll go, though. It may go quick. It may not. But we're here for the day for the, the sports episode today. So going to be a fun one. Lots of information. Just going to try to get through it. Um, but we are going to start out with the NFL Obviously, over the last couple of weeks, we've been strictly just going through college football on Mondays with occasionally recapping some games. Going to look at a little bit deeper into the NFL now, kind of like we did with college football where we usually took the three games from the weekend, broke it down, gave you the information from the game, give you some stats from the game, then kind of just look at a recap where the standings are at right now. So that's what we're going to do on this one. So the first game we're going to start out with, we're going to look at the Las Vegas Raiders versus the Kansas City Chiefs. The Raiders went on the road to take on the Chiefs. And, I mean, basically you're at this point in the game where you're week 14, you only have a couple of weeks left. Everyone's basically getting down to the last few, last little bit of the schedule where every game matters. You're trying to get playoff seating. You're, you're trying to get into the playoffs. So you have all that at stake when it comes down to these games. And if you look at the standings right now, just one loss can basically, basically screw you over the rest of the way. And Las Vegas made a mistake of going into this matchup and really getting Kansas City fired up before this matchup even started. We saw last time where they beat them. They decided to take a victory lap around the stadium and then here they come, and they want to have their team team huddle right there at the center logo of the field. And then you go and do that to a team that is already clicking, clicking over the last couple of weeks. We see them getting off to a great start. And this one, they're up 35-0 before halftime even hits. Really just ticked them off and really got Kansas City going. But you couldn't, you can't do that to a team that is clicking at the right moment. They're really just feeling good right now. The whole team is gelling, and it was evident in this one. So you add that into it, and I mean, it's just you're basically done for. So you saw it. I mean, first play of the game, it was a fumble. They take it. They go score. Constantly go defensive stop. Score. I mean, it, it was just ugly, ugly for Las Vegas. Kansas City did exactly what they've been doing over the last couple of weeks. And that's what you, I mean. You're getting to the point now with Kansas City where that's what where, what you expect at this point, because they have shown five of the last seven games they are holding teams to nine points or fewer. Five of the last seven. So I mean that's absolutely crazy considering just a couple of weeks ago we sat here talking about how they were giving up thirty plus points a game and their offense was struggling at the same time. Didn't know if they were going to be able to recover and actually get going and even make the playoffs at the point they were at, but here they go. They made a couple of trades at the trade deadline, and then they completely flip everything on its head. I mean, they're forcing turnovers like crazy. We see where they had five. They forced five in this one, and the defense continues just to be stingy, keep points off the board, and that also has helped because I think in this one we saw Mahomes throw his first touchdown pass in the last couple of weeks. And he had two in this one, so that kind of gets him going, gives him some confidence. And if they can continue to build that along with that run game continuing to gel, they're going to be in a good spot coming down the stretch. So right now they're 9-4. and four. They've won, I mean, I don't even know how many in a row at this point. But they continue to win. They continue to respond. What they're doing right now is they're sitting at the number three spot when it comes to seeding. But for them, I mean, the way they're playing, they're playing lights out, especially defensively. The offense, I feel, is going to actually take another step now with how they can – 
well, with this confidence builder for Mahomes, seeing the ball, being able to get a couple of touchdowns in this one, I think that's going to be big for his confidence, be big for that whole offensive line's confidence as well, giving him some time to be able to make those throws. So that's going to be big for them. If they can put up these type of points, the defense can, can continue to play at least around this level. I mean, if you could, like I said earlier in the year, if you can be a defense that can hold teams to 20 or less or 20 you know, around that area and your offense can just give you, I mean, 30, which obviously we know Kansas City is more than capable of doing. If they can do that, they're going to be in a really, really good position going down the stretch. And so that's what it basically comes down to for them. But I'll give you a couple of quick stats from this one looking at it. We see in this one the final score was 48-9. It was 35-0 before even halftime even hit. Uh, Kansas City just really jumped out and took care of business in this one. But five turnovers for Las Vegas, that was the biggest thing. They had four fumbles, had one interception. Uh, going down the list, though, 372 yards to 294 Kansas City. Um, they were 9 of 13 on third down. That's phenomenal. That's exactly what you want to do as an offense. Uh, just going down it's a little bit more, 132 rushing yards to 44 for Las Vegas. That has a lot to do with the fumbles as well. Um, so, I mean, penalties, 9 for Las Vegas, 8 for Kansas City. That's pretty even, but... That, I mean, that's just basically what kills you. Turnovers this time of the year, or any time of the year for that matter, will help you lose games faster than just about anything else. So Las Vegas came in there, basically screwed themselves over, and now they find themselves going to be struggling trying to get into the playoffs the rest of the way. Um, but that's what you can't do against a good football team. And the Chiefs will continue to capitalize on teams if they want to try to pull stuff like that. And it just made them play, I guess you'd say, more focused. They just wanted to come in here and show that they were the better team, and they, they fully did that. So Kansas City finds themselves 9-4. and four. They got a shot here down the stretch to be able to get that one seed, but uh, they got to continue to gel, but they're doing it at the right moment. So that's good for them. But moving on from there, next game we're going to talk about real quick. I'm going to jump down to the Bills and the Buccaneers. The Buffalo Bills were 7-5 and five coming into this one. They went on the road to battle Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who were ten and t- uh, I mean nine and three going into this one, and this one was a good game actually. We saw where earlier on in the game the Buffalo really struggled, and the Buccaneers were doing a real good job of, with Tom Brady. Obviously, he was thirty one of forty six in this matchup. He does that pretty much every week. It's just what you come to expect. Offense is going well. It looked like Tampa Bay was going to be able to hold and make this an easier game, but then all of a sudden we see Buffalo really turned it on offensively after halftime, and they were able to actually get some production down the, I mean, down the stretch to be able to get them into overtime, but when it got to overtime, you go three and out on the first drive once you get the ball, and then you turn around and hand it basically to the greatest quarterback of all time in the NFL, and he goes and hits a 58-yard bomb to be able to put this one in the books. Moves Tampa Bay to 10-3 and and gives them a good shot down the stretch as well to get the number one seed. They have to have, obviously, Arizona lose one more, but that's definitely in the cards. Just got to be able to continue to win. But looking now at some stats from this one, one that really stuck out to me, third downs on this one. And that, I mean, that's what I just said. When you get into that overtime matchup, you go three, three and out just to start overtime. You hand the ball to the greatest quarterback ever, and you end up losing. But it was just consistent with the whole way of the, the way this game went. They were 2 of 13 for the whole game versus Tampa Bay, who was 8 of 16. But other than that, you go down the list. I mean, yardage was very similar. They were 466, 488. Uh, passing, 293, 351. Rushing, Buffalo actually best, bested Tampa Bay in that, 173 to 137. 
Penalties were not too much different. Turnovers, only one for Buffalo. But where it got them was 2 of 13 on third down. And when you go 3 and out and you constantly just hand the other team the ball, that makes it very difficult for your defense. And that also makes it, I mean, easier just for the offense to have more possessions, gives them more opportunities to score. Which is also weird considering how they went 3 and out so much. We also see, though, that the possession, time of possession, they actually won just by a couple of seconds. So that's kind of interesting, but... I mean that's just the way the way the game went. It usually has a lot to do. Just two different, I should say, two different styles. It's not completely different. You see where Tampa Bay is definitely more passing oriented. We saw how much they wanted to run the ball when it come when it came to Buffalo. They ended up running the ball. I mean, 19 times. So I mean that was pretty normal for them. But you get 173, you run more time off that clock. Um, Josh Allen having to run a good bit as he normally has, which was. Even crazier because he ended up having 12 carries for 109 yards in this one, which is not something we haven't seen before. But it just made no sense because we didn't see a running back for Buffalo even take a snap, basically even get a chance to run the ball until the third quarter in this one. And so you're putting everything on your quarterback, and that's what I've talked about before previously. If you continue to put everything on your quarterback, it makes it harder to win. You have no balance. I mean, there's balance if you look at the stats of it, but when everything's just on one player to do it all, it makes it really, really difficult. And when someone has to carry out, I mean, he literally got four carries for his starting running back, four carries for 52 yards. He was getting 13 yards a carry, but he didn't even, I mean, get that many attempts. And then another one, three carries at 12 yards. So he's literally doing everything for them. And then you look on the other side of stuff, you got Tom Brady who goes 31 of 46 for 363 yards, two touchdowns. No interceptions, but then he's got Leonard Fournette, who would carry it 19 times for 113 yards. I mean, that just says it all right there. Brady gets to do his job. Fournette does his job, and that's what it comes down to. When teams do their job, do what they're supposed to, it makes it easier for everyone else across the board. But when Josh Allen's got to carry everything, you see him get worn down. He's dealing with nagging injuries now. You see where the offense is just completely predicated around him. That makes it very easy for defenses just to key in and basically say, let's try and slow him down. Now, Tampa Bay didn't do a great job of that in the second half, but when you're still playing basically 1 versus 11, you still don't have very good good odds of winning. So for Buffalo, this has just been kind of the the run of the mill for them this year. Been very up and down. First half, they struggled on offense. The second half, they didn't struggle on offense. Defense continues to give up points. We saw them give up plenty of yards on the ground last week against the Patriots. That was also due to the conditions of the game. But at the same time, though, they also gave up over 100 again this week against the Buccaneers. So the defense has been up and down. Offense is up and down. And it's just really weird considering we saw how well they did last year, won the division, make it to the later part of the playoffs last year, and then just seemed to really be struggling to really find themselves this year. But I think a lot of it just has to come down to you putting so much on Josh Allen. Is he a good quarterback? Yes. Is he one of the better in the league? Yes, he is. But at the same time, though, you definitely have to be able to spread things out, be able to make it easier for him where he can just do his job and focus on what he's supposed to do. His job, yes, is supposed to be able to win football games, but his job is not to do everything for them on offense. I mean, I know he carried the ball. He In this one, when he carried the ball, he had 12 carries. Why can't you at least give your running back at least a similar amount of carries? You didn't. You gave him four. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever when your quarterback's running the ball more than your more than your quarterback is. So, I mean, when your quarterback's running the ball more than your running back is, it makes no sense. So, they got to figure it out though because they're going to be it's going to be getting real tight for them here down the stretch and we'll kind of look at that here in just a second. But we got one more game we're going to go over. One that mattered for Cleveland in this one we saw where 
Baltimore came and paid them a visit in this one, and Cleveland somehow snuck out a win in this one, 24-22. I say somehow. We know how they did it. They got up early. They were up 24-6 to in this game. But then you see Baltimore without Lamar Jackson with an injury, the same injury that's been nagging him with that ankle. We see where the backup comes in, Huntley, and he comes in, and he did a phenomenal job. He was 27-38, had 270 yards and a touchdown comes in, gets them back into the football game, and possibly without that fumble that they had earlier and on, earlier on, they could have won this football game. So, looking at some stats from this one, though, looking at it, we got 24-22. Cleveland was the final score. Rushing was very similar, 118 to 100, and passing was 271 to 190. Baltimore won that as well. So, we actually see where Baltimore actually won the total yardage by almost 100 yards. So, they, I mean, they were right there in it. And then you just go down the list, you see what cost it for him. You had turnovers, had two to one, so that was what hurt him in that facet. Um, looking at third down, another one that I keep talking about, third downs are huge. They were one of 12 on third down, and Cleveland was six of 13. Third down is just this time of the year when you get into these type of matchups, you have to be able to convert on third down to keep drive sustained. It gives your defense more time to rest. It keeps your offense on the field to be able to get more momentum, to be able to piece plays together piece plays together, excuse me, and be able to just see what things are working against the defense, be able to build some camaraderie. And it was a little bit better in the second half, but Cleveland continued to do what they did in that first half with, not on offense, but defensively, they made stops when they absolutely had to. And that's what they had to do. So they end up getting it, getting the, getting the ball at the end while they gave up that late score. They got the ball, were able to take care of it and finally get out of there. But like I said, it wasn't pretty in that second half for the offense, but the defense did what they were supposed to, slowed them down enough, seeing a different style quarterback come in who was going to throw the ball a lot more than Lamar Jackson necessarily would and probably see a lot more rushes at him, a lot more rushing yardage. And that's what they game planned for. But then you have a quarterback who comes and can throw the ball. They held him to just that late sco- late scores there in the that matchup. So they did what they were supposed to and took care of business. But for Cleveland, you're looking at it. They, I mean, they absolutely needed this one in the grand scheme of the playoffs and how the standings are but they got to be better baker mayfield's got to be better and i understand you just lost one of your better wide receivers odell beckham jr when they were had to release him the stuff was not going well with that but i mean he had he was 22 of 32 190 yards two touchdowns one interception and i mean he's got receivers jarvis landry still there i mean they got just guys up and down the board that can be able to i mean help out in the passing game but they're just not clicking and some of that. The offense has struggled a little bit. The rushing game was not very good in this one either. They only averaged 3.4 yards a carry. Nick Chubb had 17 carries for 59 yards. I mean, 3.5 yards a carry for him. So, I mean, everything with the offense has to be better. You're getting into these type of games where you're going to run into some good defenses. You're going to be playing teams that are fighting for their lives as well. If your offense goes scoreless in a second half against maybe a team that played a little bit better in the first half and had more points and can keep things rolling for a whole game, you're going to find yourself in a bad situation. So thankfully for them, they weren't Baltimore wasn't able to get anything rolling in the first half. They were in the second half, but eventually you're going to see a team that can piece four quarters together. When that happens, you're going to be in trouble if your offense continues to play dead in the second half and doesn't show up. But I don't know. I'm just kind of surprised to see Baker Mayfield. He's had some good games this year, but then we've seen ones where he's just kind of been non-existent. And I know – I know Cleveland likes to run the ball as well because they have good a good running back core there with Nick Chubb, with Johnson, 
And, I mean, we we see that. But at the same time, though, you throw the ball 32 times, only get 190 yards passing. And also, that's has an, there is a factor of taking what the defense gives you. I understand all that. But you need a quarterback who's going to be able to step up and help you and take over games when you need to. And sometimes I kind of feel like the first reaction is just to take whatever one that he's kind of eyed in on for Baker Mayfield. And when that happens, it kind of just locks you in. You only get exactly what the defense gives you. It doesn't really give time for the play to play out. And – that's been the case for Cleveland this year, so their offense has kind of been up and down. But they go to 7-6, and six, gives them an opportunity here in the latter part of the year to be able to continue in this playoff race. So looking how the playoffs are shaking up right now, we got New England still sitting at the first spot, Tennessee at 2, Kansas City at 3, 4 for Baltimore, 5 for L.A., the Chargers. We see where Indiana's at the first wild card spot, Buffalo at the second wild card spot, and Cleveland at the last one. So with that win, they get up in there. Um, that's in large part due to seeing Cincinnati be able to – they actually fell on their game in their matchup against the 49ers in overtime, which was a game that they really needed in this one. They dropped to ninth, so they're out of the playoff picture as of right this second. Obviously, there's still more time, but it makes it tougher when you had teams that really screwed up like Baltimore – and some of these other ones that you could like Buffalo that you could have taken advantage of. So instead of going to seven and six, you go to eight and five. You're basically tied up there with Baltimore and LA. But now you're sitting here at the ninth on the outside looking in. So uh, just a lot of closeness. Like I said, the top three seeds right now in the AFC all are nine and four. So they're sitting there looking at each other and trying to figure out who's going to win. So that's going to be a good one though. But I mean, to me, that was just the way Kansas City's playing. They seem like they're just playing lights out right now. It, they could very well find themselves with the one, but I can't say New England won't as well because New England has played so well over the last couple of weeks. We continue to see their offense improve. Their defense has been phenomenal as the year has went along. So going to be a close one over on that side. And then for the NFC, we see it's pretty much just as close. We see Arizona sitting at one at 10-2, and two, Tampa Bay 10-3, and three, Green Bay 10-3, and three, Dallas 9-4, and four. Uh, LA, the Rams sitting at eight and four, San Francisco seven and six, that big win vaulted them up to that sixth spot, not on the outside looking in, they're sitting right there firmly in the sixth spot. See if they would have lost that one, they're sitting at six and seven, which also would have tied them with, I mean, you'd have basically a a tie for, I mean, in terms of record, we know there's head to head. We know all that factors percentage and all that, but it firmly cements them in this sixth spot. So, but looking down, they would have been tied with. Washington six and seven, Minnesota six and seven, Philadelphia six and seven, Atlanta six and seven, New Orleans six and seven, and I'm just talking about just record. So that would have shook things up a lot, but they helped themselves out big time with that win there, um, in that overtime win. So everything is, I mean, is on the line. You continue to look at teams. There, some teams are gelling at the right time. Some teams are playing really well. It's going to be real interesting over the last. Right now, we're at the last three weeks. So. We'll know in three weeks how things are going to shake out, how teams will be set up, and with the playoffs being a little bit, a little bit different, and how things are, are shaped. With we only have one team getting a bye, a lot of that factors in. So you're going to see a team is coming out and playing their best football over the next few weeks. So going to be interesting. We will obviously keep you updated week to week as things change. Um, but that's this week. That is week 14. So. We're getting close. That's why we're factoring in on this now. Looking at this very, very heavily, 
just like we did with college football coming down the stretch. And for the most part of the season, there is some factor with how important college football is week to week. And also with it just being one of my favorite sports, I like to look into that a good bit. So, But now it's the NFL. It's that time of the year. We're getting close to playoff time. We factor in on them. And it'll be like this for pretty much everything as we go, just like the NBA when playoff time rolls around into the season. Basically when the NFL's over, we'll key in on the NBA because it's the next thing up. But we also will look at stuff as we go. Um, but next thing up, we're going to talk about, we got some news this weekend that obviously we knew was coming Saturday night. They had the Heisman Trophy presentation in college football. Um, and it really wasn't a surprise. Some people were surprised how, I guess you say, how dominant he won the award. I can not agree with that though, because Bryce Young literally played lights out all year from start to finish. He basically didn't miss a beat. When it came to looking just like Tua out there, came to looking just like Mac Jones out there, he ran the offense beautifully. He did what he was supposed to. He had, I mean, he had some bad games, but his bad games were basically games that some quarterbacks would have taken in a heartbeat. Um, I'd say his worst one had to probably be the Auburn game, but that didn't even matter because we saw at the very end where he goes 97 yards to be able to win a football game for his team or tie the game so it goes into overtime. And then we see where he goes in and absolutely dismantles Georgia's defense, a defense that everyone was calling generational, was saying that couldn't be scored against, couldn't be passed on, and that he goes and gets 400-plus yards on that defense, absolutely shreds them. As the underdog, Alabama wins the ACC championship, cements themselves as the number one seed in the college football playoff. I don't know what more people wanted from a Heisman Trophy winner because our what more they wanted from a voting committee or from the people who voted because you go down the list, C.J. Stroud, I mean, they were 10-2. and two. He had some games where he was not very good at all. And then on top of it, you look at where his, I guess you say, stats and the production that he was able to produce. While he's throwing the ball and he can put the ball in some spots, he was good. A lot of that comes to do with if you look at the wide receiver, wide receiving core he has there at Ohio State, the best one in the country, it makes it easy to see why he's able to do that. It helps him when you have those great players around him. And it's almost similar to the situation that, I should say, Mac Jones and Tua had over the last couple of years where they're both great quarterbacks. I mean, they're both playing on Sundays. We obviously know that. But at the same time, though, we know where we saw where Mac Jones had the Heisman Trophy winner and Devontae Smith, and obviously Tua did as well the year before. But we see where these guys have had Heisman Trophy caliber players on the wide receiving core, and that obviously takes away from them. That's why neither one of them won a Heisman while they were at Alabama and Mac Jones and Tua. So that was for C.J. Stroud. Hutchinson, um, good player. It's just really hard for a defensive player to to win a, a Heisman. Should they be looked at more? I really think so. But at the same time, though, it's just a, this is the day and age we live in now. You're not going to really get that look because if you if anybody deserved that look when it came down to defensive player of the year, or who was the best defender? I mean, he won the defensive player of the year was Jordan Davis at Georgia, but obviously he wasn't even there for that one. So it's going to be about stats, and so obviously quarterback stats are going to stick out more. So obviously you're not winning as a defensive player. And Kenny Pickett for Pittsburgh, he was phenomenal all year. He was to me someone that I felt like was more deserving than Stroud or Hutchinson himself. Um, so it was interesting just to see how things shook out. A lot of people were complaining about Bryce Young being 
are winning by the margin that he did. I had no problem with it whatsoever. To me, it wasn't really that much of a question when it came down to it, especially about when you got the games eight or nine. He really cemented himself as the best quarterback out there. Did not miss a beat. And while he has good wide receivers, like I was going back to that topic real quick, while he has good wide receivers and Mechie and Jameson Williams, they're good, but a lot of his stuff that he does has, I mean, we obviously see him get other wide receivers involved, but a lot of the stuff that happens, we're seeing where he's putting stuff on a dot or putting it in a place where it, only his wide receiver can go and get the ball. It's not just separation. It's making the separation with his throws, and that's something a little bit different between Stroud and him because Stroud is thrown into wide open space. We're seeing some of the teams that they were playing. They were just getting, I mean, 10, 15 yards in between them and the next wide receiver. We're seeing where, especially in that Georgia game, you see where Bryce Young is, I mean, just putting the ball in places where only his wide receiver can get it. And it's not like it's bad coverage in some situations. It just has everything to do with the quarterback is so good he can make it happen. And so that's why I have no problem whatsoever with the result when it comes down to the when it comes down to the Heisman. So I have no problem with that whatsoever. But um, so congratulations to Bryce Young, well-deserving. Alabama now has back-to-back Heisman Trophy winners. Uh, I don't even remember the last time. Well, yes, I do. Oklahoma had back-to-back with Mayfield and uh, Kyler Murray. So it's interesting to see how these places, quarterbacks, they produce quarterbacks like they do where, um, well, not just quarterbacks, they had a wide receiver to Devontae Smith last year, but continue to produce players where they can go and win back-to-back years. Not something we see very often or have seen pretty much at all, but to see it happen here in just a short span of just the last five, six years has been very impressive. And it also shows that you want to win. You go to these places where these offensive geniuses are because they're all offensive players. I mean, that's just basically what it boils down to. And it really sucks considering that some of these defensive players want, I mean, deserve a better look when it comes down to this award. But, I mean, I don't really know when we'll actually see a defensive player get the type of consideration that he should get. So... If Jordan Davis wasn't going to get it this year, I don't think anyone's going to get the looks that they should for a while. So it'd be interesting to see, but I'm not seeing it in the cards anytime soon. But in other news in college football, we see where Oregon picked up Dan Lanning, the defensive coordinator at Georgia. And to me, this is a good hire for Oregon. It puts them with a defensive-minded head coach, which is something that we haven't seen too often, especially in the Pac-12 and they're going to need it. They got some offensive geniuses over there in the Pac-12. We see Lincoln Riley over there. We know Chip Kelly's already there. So a guy like Dan Lanning who can recruit, he's going to be able to keep some of those pieces over there on the West Coast, over there on the West Coast, and be able to bring some good defensive players there. The question for him, though, is he has no head coaching experience. He's only been a defensive coordinator. So it's going to be very interesting to see how he handles that moving from defensive coordinator to having the role of head coach placed on him if he handles it correctly which I think he'll be fine I mean he worked under he worked under Kirby he's seen stuff for a while he was there at four years at Georgia doing everything he was supposed to he built a couple along with Kirby Smart built a couple of the better defenses in the country um I mean so to me it's a good hire for Oregon you can recruit well you can get a good defense in there which is really going to help playing some of the offenses you're going to so to me it's just dependent on who he can bring in for offensive coordinator if he can get someone in there that can really develop that offense and for him he needs to do something that Kirby Smart hasn't learned to do and this is something he could learn from being an assistant for Smart is leave the offensive position alone if you don't know much about it if you're a defensive coordinator go hire an offensive guru who can come in and just handle it himself 
You hand it over to him. You do, let him develop the players. You let him run the offensive game plan. You let him decide. Sure, you can throw your input in there. That's your job as a head coach. But at the same time, though, when it comes down to it, if you don't understand it, if you don't deal with it, let him handle it. That's what his job is. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to come in there and make you look good. And if you hand the reins off, most of the time, if they've got any sense and they have a good track record, they're going to do a good job. But to me, you continually see where Kirby Smart continues to make decisions for Georgia on offense. And so it's it's killed him twice. We saw it with Justin Fields. We're seeing it now with Stetson Bennett. It's going to be a question when the playoffs come up for Georgia here in the next couple of weeks. But... um if Dan Lanning can take anything without having head coaching experience, he can learn from some of the stuff he saw at Georgia, and that's one of the ones he needs to do. He needs to hire a good offensive coordinator, bring him over there, and let him run things as he sees fits on the offensive side of the ball. Obviously, you can help recruit. You can sell kids on coming there, but for the offensive side of the ball, you don't know much about it. You haven't ran it. Bring somebody in who can do that, let him run it, and be able to – basically take over just that side of the ball because that's what that's what needs to happen. We've seen it with players, with coaches who don't know much about that side of the ball. We've seen it happen before, but we see some where who they think they have to have their hands in everything. And this doesn't mean that they're not a good head coach. It just means that they, they don't know any other way. They've been around people that have shown them they have their hands in everything. But when you have no experience on that side of the ball, you have to bring someone in who knows what they're doing and give them the reins to be able to do it. So if Dan Lanning can learn that from being at Georgia and do that at Oregon, he's going to be real good because he can build a defense there in Oregon, and Oregon can have a even a decent defense. I know for some reason it's just harder to build a really good defense over there in the Pac-12. Just different players, different style of offenses, offenses over there with the, like air raid offenses all that over there in the Pac-12. But if he can build even a semi-decent defense and then you get a coordinator in there who can build a Pac-12 offense, they'll be completely fine. They'll probably see themselves in the Pac-12 championship a good bit. And then, obviously, if you're in the Pac-12 championship, you're winning games, you can find yourself in the college football playoff. Especially with expansion coming up, you'll probably see them in it as long as he can do what he's supposed to do. So for me, this is a good hire for Oregon. On the other side of things, Georgia loses their defensive coordinator. Some people are wondering how that's going to affect them. To be honest with you, I don't expect it to affect them much just due to the fact we've seen where Mel Tucker left Georgia when they had that good defense in 2017 and 20, I think 2018 he left. And then so we saw where Mel Tucker left. There really wasn't much of a drop-off in terms of defensive performance because we know Kirby recruits at a high level on the defensive side of the ball. He also structures that defense based off how he did at Alabama. He may not be the calling the plays defensively there at Georgia now, but he still structures that, puts his mindset into that defense. We know that's what he's doing, and it works well. So I don't think you'll see much of a drop-off when it comes to that because he understands that side of the ball. So I don't think you'll see much of a drop-off. They've already said they're going to recruit two of their uh, position coaches up to as co-defensive coordinators, one of them being Will Muschamp. So they'll be completely fine. I don't think you'll see much of a drop-off. Dan Lanning is staying for the college football playoffs, so not much changes for Georgia for the rest of this year. They'll go into the offseason with two guys that have already been a part of the program for the past year who understand this defense, understand what they're looking to do. Muschamp's obviously been a good defensive coordinator in the past, and so they'll be completely fine on that side of the ball. So not much changes there for Georgia. So going to be interesting to – to see how Dan Lanning does there at Oregon. But overall, I think it's a great hire when you look at it, and I think it'll benefit Oregon well. There was some talks of Oregon bringing back Chip Kelly when this first started up with their whole coaching carousel. I didn't like that move at all because I kind of felt like it was just a settle move 
They were basically going to get the same thing they got in the past. Same thing you're basically getting at UCLA. You're getting a decent offense who can win you some games and be able to sit around 8-4, eight, 9-3, eight and four, nine and three, but you're not going to find a guy who's going to be able to push you over the top and get you to that playoff spot that you want. Bringing in a defensive guy is a smart move. That will, could quite possibly do it for him. But you're going to have a little bit of growing pains there, having a new coach there, not having any head coaching experience. But So it's a good hire, though, I think. So moving on from there, I'm just going to take a quick look at college basketball over the weekend. Uh, this one has been quite interesting this year just in college basketball. We've seen where teams have not really been able to maintain their spot when it comes to the top 25. We see where teams continue to drop off. And that was the case once again. We saw where the Purdue had to go on the road to Rutgers and ended up losing at the buzzer on a half-court heave. So we see where number one goes down once again. No one's been able just to sit at number one. And, uh, I mean, for good reason. We see where these teams continually have struggled on the defensive side of the ball, giving up 70-plus points in that aspect. We also saw where Purdue, after they lose that game to Rutgers, we see where just today – or not today, excuse me, just yesterday we saw where they went and played NC State at NC State, gave up 72 and almost lost in overtime, ended up outscoring them by 10 in overtime to be able to win it. But you gave up 72 again. It cost them that almost cost them that game. You almost dropped two in a row. So obviously you know when the new rankings come out, you're not staying at number one. But we do know who is moving to number one just because of how well they have been playing, and it's going to be based off especially their performance that they had yesterday against Villanova in the Big East Big 12 battle that was going on there. We saw number two Baylor take on number six Villanova, and I don't know if, if you like defense at all like I do. This was the game to watch. This is the team to watch. We saw it last year when Baylor won the title last year. It was based off of their defense. And they're doing it once again this year. And, I mean, I'm just going to go through the stat line real quick. This is just going to be based off of them, this quick look that we're looking at real quick. is just looking at how, dominate, how dominant their defense has been dominating teams in the box score. I was looking at how Villanova played in this one, seeing how the players played in this one. And seeing some of the replays going on from this matchup, there was one player that had five field goals, and that was Moore with five of 14, had 15 points. There wasn't anybody else that had more than two field goals, and there was only two guys that had two field goals. They each scored six apiece. But you go down the list, one of seven, one of seven, one of six, five of 14, two of seven, zero of zero, zero of one, zero of two, zero of three, two of seven, for a total of 12 of 54 for 22% shooting. They were 6 of 27 from 3 for 22% as well. That is absolute, absolutely insane how well of a defensive performance that was. And something else that was very impressive as well, you go down and look at Baylor, who they played. They played a total of 8 players compared to the 10 that Villanova played. So 8 players shut down a team to 12 of 54 shooting and held them to a total of 36 points in a whole entire basketball game. Villanova is also the number ranks, number six ranked team in the country at the time. That is absolute crazy that number two was able to win 57 to 36, holding them to 36 points, absolutely all over them the whole entire game. Everywhere they look, the guards just for Villanova cannot get going, always constantly having a defender in your face. And we saw it last year, whether it was Mitchell, I mean, you name the guy, we saw where they were able to dominate on the defensive side of the ball last year. And now it's going to have them sitting at number one once again 
when it comes down to the top 25 when it comes out this week. And they absolutely deserve it because we continue to see where games and just sports all around continue to trend more towards the offensive side of the ball. But it just seems to me that we always see teams that have somewhat of a defense continue to show that they can dominate on the defensive end when either it comes to basketball, it comes to football, whatever. We see where those teams continually stay in the rankings. We obviously see where they continually stay into the end of the playoffs as well. And so you look at Baylor, to me, I mean, it's going to be really hard to out. There's going to be a game where they're going to lose. That's just part of it. You're going to have a game where your defense doesn't play as well. But lasting over a run, who do you trust? Who do you trust sitting at number one for a consistent period of time? For me, it's Baylor. You can play defense this well. Defense always shows up. This wasn't even their best offensive performance. I mean, they were 22 of 56 shooting for 39.3%. That's not that good. But the fact of the matter is when you hold any team to 36 points in college basketball, you'll be able to win that basketball game. And so who do you trust to be able to do that consistently? It's Baylor and no one else. So they will find themselves sitting at number one. Obviously, we know Purdue's going to drop after their close call yesterday and then also their loss this past Thursday. Baylor will definitely be sitting at number one, and I don't think that's going to change until they have that that game. And when I say they're going to have that slip-up, it's just going to be that game where you're going to see where the defense is just a little bit sluggish, a team gets hot, it's able to hit some outside shots, and the offense isn't just clicking just right. That's going to happen. That happens to every single team. But if you want to trust a team down a stretch of a of a playoff or a, um, a tournament, the bracket, whatever you want to call it, March Madness, they're going to be able to do it because they got the type of players. I mean, just eight players were able to go out there and shut that down. I mean, that's that's crazy to me. So. Baylor absolutely deserves it. They'll go to number one. So that was the quick look at college basketball. We'll obviously have more as we go along there. And just one more quick look. We're going to look at the NBA real quick. We're going to look at just one game, really. Going to look at the Nets versus the Pistons. Kevin Durant decided to go off for 51 points in this matchup. Had 51-9-7 and and absolutely carried Brooklyn in this one. James Harden sat out for his first game of the year for rest, resting purposes. I don't know why we have resting purposes still at this point but Kevin Durant absolutely carried them 116 to 104 wins out 51 9 and 7 that's the highest scoring performance of the year for anybody in the whole entire league bested Curry's 50 so 51 for for Durant and 50 for Curry earlier in the year and basically that's just how the the MVP performance is going to come down to it's going to come down between these two guys you got Durant who continually has led the league in scoring now and we see where Curry on the flip side has obviously done just as well. We see now, though, where he's struggling a little bit, and I'll get into that in a minute. But for Durant, comes into this matchup, takes full advantage of a Detroit team that is absolutely sliding, losing 10 games in a row at this point, cannot get themselves up off the ground. And James Harden being out says, I'm going to put it on my shoulders and I'm going to be able to win this game for us. So he was able to do that. He shot 16 of 31. Uh, almost fouled out, had five fouls, but played 41 minutes. That's the only thing you don't like with your players in this type of a game. They want to play longer. They want to be able to score when they're feeling good, when they're feeling hot. So you let them play a little bit longer. That's the only bad part of it, but you win a game when your second-best player is not even in there. So it's a good I mean, a good win for Brooklyn. They're 19-8. and eight. They continue to sit atop the Eastern Conference. They will continue as long as they continue to get performances like this from Durant which you never know with him. He's one of the best scorers in the game, in the history of the game as well. At seven foot, can be able to shoot past, dribble, everything you can possibly think of. 
that's what you want in a player, and he's going to continue to do it. So to me, I said I still think Curry's going to win the MVP. He was my MVP prediction earlier part of this year, but Durant obviously has a shot with the way he continues to play. And if he continues, I mean, he'll be right there in the mix of it. But looking at how things are shaking up just around the league real quick, we saw where Golden State lost a game due to the fact where, once again, Curry struggles, the whole team struggles. And I think a lot of his struggles that he's had over just the past two games or so has come down to we see where he's only six three-pointers away now from breaking the NBA's all-time record for most three-pointers made in a career. He's trying to pass Ray Allen, and we saw where he was trying, where it's just basically been the talk for the past two games. And we've seen where he struggled in those games, and I think it has a lot to do with it being on his mind. And players try to say, oh, I'm trying not to think about that. You know they're thinking about that. I mean, that's one of the biggest records that are out there when you look at points, assists, three-pointers. I mean, you go down a list, three-pointers is a big one. He's completely changed the game when you look at how people want to shoot the long ball, how they want to be able to – I mean, it's changed everything from defense to offense, everything. Everything is based around the three-point shot, and it has everything to do with him. And he's got this opportunity to go out here and break one, uh, one of these records that people at the time when it was when it happened didn't know if it was ever going to get broken. And now we're seeing it's absolutely going to be shattered by the time Curry's career is over and done with. So it's just one of those ones that's probably lingering in his head. He realizes he's got to get six more. So he struggled these last two. I really wouldn't be surprised if in the next matchup that he's in, he goes and just goes off, gets seven, eight threes, breaks it, shatters it, drops 40. It wouldn't surprise me whatsoever because that's the type of player he is. You kind of get concealed for a couple of games. You usually have a big breakout game. So for him, I really wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. He'll do that, I mean, at some point. He's going to break it. That's just what he deserves. He's done everything he's supposed to change the game. This is his record to have, and he'll be able to do it here very, very shortly. But with that said, though, that's today's show. Thank you for joining us today. I want to announce a quick schedule change for this week on how we're going to do the podcast. We usually do a sports on Monday and then Thursday. I'm going to flip it. We're going to do it Monday and Friday. So just Tuesday and Thursday will be politics. Friday will be sports. This Friday is when bowl season kicks off, and we obviously want to have a bowl special ready for you. So we're going to go through this Friday on our sports one and just break down the bowl games. Some of the better bowl games will break down, but we want to kind of give you a prediction for almost every single bowl game there is. And just let you look at them, have something to listen to, give you a quick look through of each and every one of the matchups that are going to go on. And we got some good ones going on the list. We will save the top four, the four matchup or the two matchups from the college football playoff. We are going to have a special episode just for that. That'll be coming up. We have some exciting details about that one that we will announce in the coming weeks. We don't have too much longer before that one even comes around, so we won't have to wait long for that one though. But with that said though, that is the schedule change for this week. Be looking forward to that one. And with that said, thank you for joining us today, and we will see you in the next one.